Let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. For anyone that is just joining this sermon by tape, we have read together Psalm 127 already this morning and commented rather extensively on it. Now to those of you that are here, I hope that you're able when the truth is taught to be able to understand the point that's being made without having all the exceptions or aspects of it opened to your sight. When I said that childbearing and carrying a baby is a curse, I am referring to the fact in the word of God that God cursed conception and childbearing. To pretend that it is not cursed is to be foolishly rebellious against the word of God. However, for the propagation of our race, for multiplying and replenishing the earth, and for having children, that's how they get here. And from a godly man's viewpoint, a pregnant woman is a beautiful woman. Childbearing is a blessing from the Lord. But we see that all together. Let me see if I can help you with this illustration. Our nation calls the last years of your life the golden years. The Bible calls them the evil days. Now who's right? God. Evil days. The body starts to break down. The body is no longer as strong. The mind is no longer as strong. For our family devotions last night, for which I was very thankful, to have the whole huge family there crushing my new smaller living room, my father read a paragraph from a letter from the man who ordained him many, many years ago, an 85-year-old man who must go every day to feed his wife her meals. She has Alzheimer's disease, does not know who he is, and cannot eat for herself. Those are not the golden years. Those are the evil days. If you want to modify golden years and talk about the good aspects of getting older, there are some, but they are few in comparison to the trouble that comes. That's what I meant about childbearing. It's a blessing. And every man in here that's married should look forward to the time when he can bring his pregnant wife into public view and show her what great things the Lord has done for him. It's a good time and it's a good thing. And it's not something that we ought to resent, make fun of, or anything like that. Women glow when they're pregnant, sometimes. Sometimes they don't feel very glowing, and they don't look very glowing when they're sick for the first trimester. But we want to be thankful for all those things, but I hope you can understand me. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever deal with both sides of an issue at one time, ever. Because intelligent people don't need that. Because to make a point, you have to deal with one side, If you deal with both sides, there is no point left for the hearer to go out with. And so it is strong one way or another. You know, in Genesis, it doesn't say anything about the blessing of bearing children. Not a thing. Except hid way back in there in the words to Satan that Eve was going to eventually bring forth a savior for men. But it's just cursed. I've greatly multiplied thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow, you're going to bring forth children. It doesn't deal. Then we go to Psalm 127. It shows us the other half. And we're supposed to know our Bibles well enough to see both. 
yes, I'm intense against those women who want to say that birth control is sinful and that you ought to have as many as possible. None of them are consistently true, ever. They'll nurse for a decade, but because that is so-called some natural means of birth control, they don't include that one. Then they'll go to the next step, that as long as they're using the so-called rhythm and timing method, because that's natural, that isn't really birth control either. They're liars, because they've got themselves into a fix. If they're going to worship ovulation, then every egg dropping is most important, and they better nail it for the next child. You could nurse for a week so that you could tell the Lord that you've nursed and go right back to your husband and see if you can get another one. Now, that, all of that is bizarre and it's foolish, but it's taking their wicked arguments to an extreme. Children in the Bible are the man's, and the man should be a leader of his family by talking about how many we're going to have, how many we can train, how many we can support, and building his family. And of course, the wife is involved. Few men have bore children themselves. <laughs> I hope that everyone can understand. Amen. I get tired of all these extremes that are in the world today. We don't want to be extreme in either way. We want to have children. We, want it, we, have a, we live in a blessed nation. We live in the easiest time to have children although we can't put them to use productively like we could in previous generations. You'd have a big farm and your husband would want as many as you could give him to help milk those cows and to help plow those fields and gather that hay and produce in. He needed them. And every few years, the army would come by and destroy a number of them. So women had as many as they could. But every woman has a different capacity. And she's able to tell rather quickly if she's able to have very many more or not, or what kind of a trust she's going to have to wear to still be able to get around the house. Because the body cannot take it. It varies from woman to woman. Enough said on that birth control, because this, this sermon entitled Family Planning has nothing to do with birth control. It has to do with controlling those you've already given birth to. It has to do with training a godly seed, which the Lord has called us to do. A great family does not just happen. God will not give any of us great families just by grace. He expects us to use the means and the instruction and wisdom that he's given us in the Holy Bible. Great families don't just happen. They must be purposed. They must be planned. They must be executed. They must be completed to have a great family. And it's a challenge that God's given all of us. It's a duty God's given us to purpose a godly family, to plan it, to see it through by doing the things necessary for it and completing it as we're on the other side of seeing that godly family. That's what I mean by family planning. What can we do to have a godly family? A great family has all of its members fulfilling all of its roles that are found in the Bible and bearing spiritual fruit into successive generations. That's a godly family. Can you think about that again? A great godly family has all the members of it fulfilling their roles that God gave them and bearing spiritual fruit into successive generations. I'll show you the passages again. I hope you know where we can go 
to show where God expects fathers to consider four generations in their thinking about their family. Four. It's wonderful. A wonderful influence that can be had. The world today has lost focus on the family. With everyone is running every which way. They're hardly together as a family anymore. It just happens. She happened to get pregnant. There's no planning. The family happens. It doesn't happen to be a good family. True family planning is designing a family, purposing to have children and what you're going to do with them, having it all laid out up front, not having it happen to you as an accident. And there's so many in here that are young, but all of you young children, I hope that you can start to think, and parents, it's your job to be talking at your dinner table about having a family. It can be done at the dinner table about what kind of a woman to marry that can be a great wife and a great mother and what kind of child training they're going to practice and what it means to have a downline called a family. That should be talked about in the home. This is what I have for you this morning and I hope you're listening. It is a plan to have a godly family. Stephen Eastland Jr., stand up. You're not in trouble. Do you know I'm going to go away? I'm going to go away and they're going to put me in a cemetery if Jesus Christ doesn't come back. Your father's going to go away. There's going to be a day and it's going to happen before you can even imagine it where someone's going to say, would Mr. Stephen Eastland Jr. and his family please stand? You will be a father and a husband and you will have a family. And before you know it, you'll have grandchildren. It is not right for me to have grandchildren. I am too young. I'm still a teenager, I think. But every time I try to go compete with my teenagers, I, I'm reminded that I am a very old man. It's going to happen before you know it. Your father is a hero in our church. He's given you for the last 11 months a great example. I hope that someday you'll be a father and a husband like your father. And that you will train your children to be husbands and fathers like your father. Do you know what kind of an effect you can have on the world? A great effect. And then those children, which were getting to the fourth generation of Stephen Eastland, can train their children, their sons, to be great fathers and husbands. That is a pretty big pyramid, isn't it? We're getting out to a lot of people that can influence the earth for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we hope he comes before you have to worry about any of that. And I'm sorry to take away all those privileges, but we hope he comes soon. You may be seated. You're not in trouble. Someday, it's going to be Mr. Stephen Eastland, Jr. and his wife and his children and his grandchildren. All of you children can think about what I'm talking about. And every one of you parents, you are bound before God to be teaching them these things at their tables when you sit down, when you rise up in your house, to teach them the beauty of a godly family. They will, not, they will not know to think otherwise if you have taught them from the earliest days of the wonders of a godly family. Because it is a wonderful thing to have seven children, four spouses, three and a half grandchildren in my living room last night with my parents and to present them to my father and mother as I get to do every other Saturday evening, as my portion of his family is an incredible blessing. 
because that's the rock out of which I was hewn. The Bible tells children to look at the rock out of which they were hewn. That example is found in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, where God told Israel, look back at Abraham and Sarah and how I bless them. I can bless you the same way I bless them. There's my beginnings right there. Those two, many, many years ago, almost 50 now, when my father asked my mother, will you serve the Lord with me for the rest of my life? That was his proposal. That's where I came from. I have a godly heritage and I'm thankful for it. Yeah. Not everyone had the same type of a heritage, but by the grace of God, you are all under the sound of my voice this morning and that means there is no difference left for you to blame. We all have the word of God. We all have the spirit of God. We can all be godly fathers. Right. But there's a father sitting in here and I'm his son and I have sons and they have daughters. And there's a big family, and I'm very thankful for them. I have some precious grandchildren. And for anyone who has listened to any comment that I've made and don't think that I like my family, you are out of your mind. I have some precious grandchildren that I got to honor last night in front of the whole family for some very noble things that they have done recently. Character things. They're five and seven. Character matters. Character. The ability to know and think and act according to God's word. Character. That's what we mean. And they did some things for which they deserve some honor. I love my family. I want you to love your family. I don't want to talk about my family. I want you to be thinking about your family. I care about each one of you. And I care about each one of your children. And I care that we have families that grow up that please the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So that when he comes... He sees loving husbands and wives, obedient children, obedient grandchildren, and all of them building godly families that are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, where heaven is the most important thing that's going to happen in their lives, where they love one another, where they search and crave the truth of Scripture, right. where they live godly lives, where they'll defend the truth. That's what I'm looking for, and that's what the Lord's looking for. I'm just his little ambassador to come and tell you this morning what he's looking for. You know I preach all over the map because I want to preach the whole counsel of God lest anything slip through the cracks that we ought to be doing. Last Sunday was the mercy of God. Very different from what I'm teaching you right now. This evening is going to be the last words of David, and it's going to be very different from this morning. It's going to be David's confidence in the everlasting covenant made for him with the Lord Jesus Christ that was all his salvation and all his desire. And we're going to come to the Lord's table. I'd rather preach tonight than this morning. But since God's given me his word that includes this, it's time. Right. Amen. Family planning. What we mean is planning a godly family and bringing it to pass. May the Lord help us to this end. Amen. The world's breaking down the family and there's a corresponding breakdown in every level of authority. Because you learn about authority in the family. You learn about order in the family. You learn about submission by watching a godly mother. You learn it in the home. It's taught in the home by a godly example. The Bible addresses every aspect of a family. If you will stop and think, and I mentioned this already this morning, it addresses every relationship. The Bible talks about grandparents. The Bible talks about grandchildren. It talks about parents. It talks about children. It talks about husbands, wives, sibling relationships, aunts, uncles. It talks about it. God is concerned with every aspect in a family. And do you know what he wants? 
to be able to come and bless a people? What are a people prepared for the Lord? In the Bible, there is a condition that had to be met for the coming of Jesus Christ. A people prepared for the Lord. What was the necessary condition? Godly families, where the hearts of the Father have been turned to the children, and the hearts of the children turned to the fathers. John the Baptist came with that ministry. It is that important. Jesus Christ wanted godly families to come and visit, lest he smite the earth with a curse. Righteous relationships I've preached on in the past, it's that important to the Lord. There's only one way to maximize your life in this world. God's given you life. Have you ever thought about your existence? Why you're here? What you're here for? What's your purpose? God's given you an existence, and he's outlined it for you. And the way to maximize your influence is to have a godly family. And it's laid out in the Bible for us. Now we've studied Abraham, and we're in Deuteronomy 10. I spent months on Abraham, didn't I? We looked at every aspect of Abraham that we could. He's called the father of the faithful. He's a great example of faith for us. But I want you to see about Abraham's family. And that was a small family. He didn't even have any children until he was 100, and Sarah was 90. But look what it says in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 22. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. That's Moses speaking to Israel, numbering a few million. Your fathers went down into Egypt, 70 souls. But remember how many came into Canaan? Two, a man and his wife. They had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Then the 12 patriarchs and 70 went down into Egypt. And now it was a multitude as the stars of heaven. That's God blessing a man named Abraham and his wife because they cared about their son and they had godly family planning and so did Isaac for his son, Jacob. What tore up Isaac and Rebekah? Do you, do you know your Bibles? What tore up Isaac and Rebekah about their other son, Esau? Marriage. He married the daughters of the land. They were good daughters. They were good-looking daughters. They could cook well. They were well-known. They had got good grades in school, but they were unacceptable. And it tore up Isaac and Rebekah because he had married the daughters of Heth, Hittites, Canaanites. Esau had married them. And so Isaac pulls Jacob aside and says, I'm sending you back home to go get one of your cousins that still fears God in this wicked place. And you bring her back here and you can have a family. Abraham did the same thing for Isaac. He pulled his most trusted servant aside and said, we can't marry these pagan women in this place, even though they get good grades. They go to school, they look good, they cook good, they're well known, they have respect, re reputable families, etc., etc. They don't fear God. So take your hand and stick it under my clothes and grab my private member where I am circumcised to show my obedience and loyalty to the Lord Jehovah and make me an oath. Now, brethren, you'd get pretty serious at that moment, wouldn't you? You make me an oath. Yes, that's what the Bible says, and it says it in a euphemism. Put thy hand under my thigh. You make me an oath that you will go and get my son 
a wife that fears God from my relatives and that you will bring her back here and that you will not let my son marry any of the daughters of this land. Now that's family planning. That's where this man started. One man, one woman, they're both mentioned in the Bible as examples of faith. Both the man and his wife are in Hebrews chapter 11. Isn't that wonderful? Both Abraham and Sarah are in Hebrews 11, and Sarah is given as an example of a godly woman in 1 Peter 3 and verse 6. And from them came Isaac. Now Abraham married some other women, and there were some other children, but guess what? You're never going to read about them because it didn't come from the same godly origin as those two together. God put his stamp of approval upon Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac. May the Lord bless us with similar blessings. And for throughout the history of Israel, they spoke of Abraham as their father. For 1,500 years, they spoke of Abraham as their father. Do you know what kind of dedication and commitment that is to one man and his wife who feared God and followed the Lord's leading out of the land of the Chaldeans and into the land of Canaan? Forever, they considered themselves the children of Abraham, and they were. And that's why the Lord would say, consider the rock out of which you were hewn, that rock and the pit out of which you were digged. That's Isaiah 51 and 1. Look at how I made you. I made you from Abraham and Sarah. And if I could take a man and his wife who were reproduct reproductively dead and create such a great nation, I can certainly take care of you. That's his way of reasoning in Isaiah 51. I've already mentioned this morning Boaz and Ruth. You would have no reason to remember Boaz, and Boaz would not be mentioned in the Bible if it hadn't been for Obed, and if it hadn't been for Jesse, and if it hadn't been for David. Why is Boaz and Ruth great? Because of the great-grandparents of David. That's why they're great. Look at that godly couple. Was there ever a more godly couple than Boaz and Ruth when you read about their character in that little book of Ruth? Boaz was a great, virtuous, and noble man. And Ruth was a virtuous woman, and the whole city knew it about her, even though she was a Moabitess. Yes. And what a union they had, and the child they had, and the child he had, and the fourth generation from Boaz, David of Bethlehem, and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a man after God's own heart. This, this subject requires a couple of things. It requires wisdom, and we don't have it by nature. I wrote recently in, in, the, in a commentary on Proverbs, I think it was yesterday, about young men, because I'm back to chapter 1 yesterday. Proverbs chapter 1 says, we're told the reason why Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, to give young men knowledge and discretion, because young men come into this world without any knowledge or discretion. They can father children, but they can't train children. And there's a big difference between fathering, fathering children and training them. Dogs. Pigs, any brute beast that you want to think about can father children, but they can't train them. And so we need wisdom, and wisdom comes from the Word of God. The wisdom that God wants us to have to be able to train children comes right out of this book. Not only do we need wisdom, we need temperance, which is the self-denial and discipline to be able to do what the book tells us to do. Temperance. They have temperance to obtain a corruptible crown. The athletes of our generation are incredibly dedicated individuals. They set a goal. They have a plan. And they execute that plan 
with a lot of self-denial over many years. They do it to obtain a ridiculous crown that no one is going to remember about, remember in years to come. We have another goal set before. There's many goals. One is to win the approval of Christ, and I don't mean to neglect that at all, but part of that is in the way we raise our families right. and train our families. That's a crown that we're going to get. What is the crown of old men? Gray head. What is the glory of grandchildren? Their father. What's the glory of grandfathers? Their grandchildren. There's a crown. There's a blessing. There's a goal for us to have with our children. Amen. And we get there by wisdom out of God's word and by temperance, which is the self-discipline and self-denial of putting it into practice. And it takes work. I hope everyone in here, old and young, will be thinking about what I can do to have a godly family. I want that godly family. I want to have that downline. People will have join businesses to build a downline. Everybody wants to be a manager. They think that a manager is some exciting position. A manager is not an exciting position. It's a horrible position. It means you're responsible for other people. But God gives you the great management, the greatest management job in the world, and that's to have children. They're given to you helpless where you can train them so that they will learn how things are done in this home. It's not like having a business and bringing them in where they've already got their mind set on how they're going to conduct themselves because they had some horrible manager before. You get them with what I call a blank slate. And it's your job to fill it with righteousness. Wisdom and temperance. Feeding your children. I've tried to make this point plain in some Proverbs recently. Feeding your children. Providing for your children. Making a safe place for them. All animals do that. That is not child training, and there ain't a thing noble about it. Animals do it, unless you're going to say that what brute beasts do is noble. It's not noble because it's nothing. If you don't do that, you're worse than an infidel, and you've denied the faith. It's just so basic to provide for your family, First Timothy chapter 5 says. That isn't what we're going after. We're going after another level of raising a family, and that's to train them to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to fear God and to love his word and to live according to his word. I want a godly family. Amen. Sherry and I want a godly family together. My father wants a godly family. I intend to have one, but I don't want to talk about my family because as God is my witness, my ambition may not be quite as high, but I hope that it's right there for your families and for your children. I will do anything for you or your children to help you accomplish the goal of having a godly family. I am committed to that. Those of your children who, who use me know that. Those of you who use me know that. I will serve you to the best of my ability. Now, I don't want anyone in here to feel like they're being attacked because I love you. So I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 10 and refresh yourself on my ministry. My ministry is not like Robert Schuler's ministry. Right. Robert Schuler wants to tell you that you're wonderful. And he just wants to grin at you this morning until you grin back, and then you can all go home because we've accomplished a great deal. We have found heaven because we have all boosted our self-esteem. Robert Schuler believes that hell is living life without self-esteem. They've all given up on a burning hell these days. 
I'm not like that. This is my, this is my calling right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 4, 3. Let's get 3. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul said this about himself and his fellow ministers, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. There is a godly minister in verses 3 through 6 of 2 Corinthians 10. These verses are not taught any longer. Today you have to be politically correct, compromising, and effeminate so that you can build a congregation on entertainment and fables and some peace-loving little pansy in the pulpit. Now, I love peace, but we're never going to have peace at the expense of purity. We're going to do what's right. These verses are my mandate. It is a war, and it's a war, my dear church members. It is a war between you and me. It's a war between me and the imaginations of your mind. It's a war against your strongholds, the things that you have built up to protect the way you do things. It is my war to go and throw my grappling irons on that thing, get inside, tear it down, blow it down, then to bring into captivity every thought you have to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is a gospel minister, and there isn't a substitute for that. And I love every one of you, but it's my job in these few minutes I get every week to attack your erroneous positions. And many times they're mine. They've been attacked before I even get here. And I'm attacking them while I'm speaking. I have a mind that's able to think about how does that apply to me as well as you while I'm talking. I'm not saying anything great and noble about it, but it's able to do that. This is my job right here, to cast down your imaginations and every high thing, every lofty thought of yours that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's my job to bring into captivity. I'm to lock up and chain you until you're obedient to Jesus Christ. This is the ministry. And as soon as I get you obedient, I'm supposed to be ready at all times to revenge any act of disobedience. That is the word of God. Amen. I didn't go to seminary because they had never taught me that. Amen. I'm thankful that I was taught this. Amen. I'm thankful that I'm able to read it. I'm thankful that God gave me a conviction to read it, to love it, and to do it. Right. And so now it's time to do it. So don't anyone in here feel that I don't like you. It's not a personal attack. It's an attack against high thoughts, imaginations, and strongholds that you have built up, or your parents built up, or Benjamin Spock built up, or James Dobson built up, or someone else built up that can't be defended by the Word of God. Right. i got to go after them, Amen. and so we go after them. I have a 66-inch saber. It's the 66 books of the Word of God. Amen. I have a 66 magnum, and I will take down your strongholds. Amen. But I hope that you want them to be brought down. Amen. I hope that we all want godly families. Listen, brethren, right. the goals of godly families are the glory of Christ, the defense of the truth, in our happiness. Mm -hmm. True. There's nothing more painful than an ungodly family. Yep. The Bible tells it it's a calamity of a father. The book of Proverbs says that over and over again. The glory of Christ, 
the defense of the truth, and our happiness in that order because I serve Christ first. Some of you have made progress in some of these matters. Some of you haven't. Some of you, the future is very bleak. You are losing your children and you are losing your downline because of sinful habits as parents. And so I'm going to address that. Great families don't just happen. We have to make them happen by the Lord's blessing. Well, much could be, I'm gonna, a whole lot could be said, but I've said it before. This is only going to be one or two sermons. I'm going to hit some high points. In 1987 and 1988, I preached 22 messages on child training. That outline's available. The tapes are available. You can go through all the details that you want. Right now, I just want to get your commitment. I want to get your conviction. I want to get your, your plan, that you want to have a plan and do something to have a godly family. Because I believe that the biggest problem in sinners is not that we need to know more. Sometimes there's a need for knowledge. It's that we're not convicted to do what we already know. Right. We're too lazy. Amen. We're too distracted. We're too busy. We've got our priorities out of place, and so all it takes is a sermon or two to get us convicted enough to say, Lord, forgive me for having my priorities out of place. I'm shutting down my business. I'm going to cut out two of these hobbies, and I'm going to commit myself with renewed effort to child training. There's time to go. We want families that are testimonies to the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. He's our king, and we want our children to look like citizens of his kingdom. We don't want to, be, have, to, we don't want to have to scatter tracts like proselytizing Hindus. We want our families to be evidence of the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. We want to defend and vindicate the Bible. The whole world is against this Bible on every subject. They say that men can marry men. They say that women can marry women. This Bible says it's an abomination, a, perverse, a perversity, and they're dogs. We want to defend this by holy living. They downgrade the family, let's upgrade it. They downgrade marriage, let's upgrade it. Right. They say, kids, you can't beat them. God said, kids, you better beat them. Right. We better defend the word of God by showing that corporal punishment works because we're the only ones in town that have godly children that conduct themselves well and that are charming to all those that meet them. Let's defend the word of God. So the, the purpose of all of this and our goal is to please Christ. So that Jesus of Nazareth, who sits at the pinnacle of power of our universe, is pleased with our families. And that we are a defense of the gospel by our lives. We show that the Bible works. Right. We don't have divorces. We don't have families blowing apart because we follow the word of God. And then we have the peace, the prosperity, and the pleasure that comes from a big, happy family where everyone loves each other, and most of all, everyone loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. I had that last night, and I have, it, I have it often. And I want you to have it. Some of you have it right along with me. But I want us all to have it, and I want us to have it as it progresses into further generations to where I've got the little hose and the little canister beside me and I'm in a wheelchair, but there's four generations in the room. You know, as evil as those days will be, because I won't be able to take care of myself, if I can see through misty eyes generations that fear the Lord, Amen. I'll be happy. Amen. Do we agree, Dad? Amen. How do we do it? There's only one 
there's only one handbook for it. It's the Bible. Right. How long do I need to spend on that point? Can I just say it? Amen. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Do all those things mean how husbands treat wives, yep. how wives treat husbands, yep. how parents treat children, yep. how children should treat parents? Mm -hmm. It's all in the Bible. I esteem. That means I put up in a high and lofty position. I put up in a high and lofty position everything the Word of God has to say, and I hate every false way. That is the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now tonight we're going to read a, a eulogy of David in 2 Samuel 23.1 that says he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. But I want you to remember something about the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was also a mighty man of war. Right. Right. And he's the one that said, I hate every false way. Yep. Any thought contrary to the word of God, I want to pull down, slash, cut out, root out of your lives. Because it's contrary to scripture, remember? Back to my goal as a minister is to make war with your thoughts. We trust the Bible and whatever it says because God ordained the family, made the man, made the woman, made conception, and gave the wisdom on how a man and a woman, having conceived, can train a child to please him. So we trust the Bible. And whatever the Bible has to say about a man, about a woman, about their children, we trust it, we believe it. We lean not unto our own understanding, but in all our ways we acknowledge him. All of our family ways we do it the Bible way. And every father in here should be teaching his family, that's how we're going to do it. Whatever the Bible says, that's what we're going to do in this home. Whatever the pastor teaches us from the Bible, that is what we're going to do. Because we want to be Bible believers. That's what we are. Our goal is to have a godly seed. Isn't that why God made one woman for one man? Malachi chapter 2, we're told. Why? He had the residue of the Spirit. He could have made many women for that one man, Adam. He made one. And why? This is the Lord asking. And why? That he might seek a godly seed. One man, one woman, monogamy, where both parties fear God, love each other, and have a baby, is a precious foundation of our society, and they're trying to crush it. They want to make babies in test tubes, and they want to let two women adopt babies, and two men adopt babies. It's all messed up. They want people to live together and have babies. They've messed it all up. It's monogamy. One man, one woman, fearing God, loving each other, having a baby and training it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That right there is beautiful. That works. That builds a healthy society, and our world is tearing it down, tearing it down every day. We want to establish it. We want our daughters and our sons to be like plants growing up in their youth and polished cornerstones in the temple of God, Psalm 144. We want our children to continue to call upon the name of the Lord like they began to call upon the name of the Lord in the days of Seth in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. Right. We want to do it. We're going to do it the Lord's way. All the relationships in a family have been settled by God and they've been recorded in the Bible. It's all settled. We don't, have to we don't have to learn on our own. We don't have to experiment. We don't have to discover. We just have to read and do. Right. When I was being introduced to Schlotsky's, when I was working over at that Schlotsky's Deli on Augusta Road, my first couple of days in the job, I'd be, I was standing at one of the stations and that chain-driven cheese melter, which is an oven that heats the bread and melts the cheese, was bringing sandwiches to me. And I didn't know what to do with them, and 
I'd panic and they'd start to pile up and the owner would come over and grab me and throw me out of there and sort everything out. And then when he was done and put it all back together and he let me back in to mess up his restaurant for the next time, he'd say, it's this simple, Crosby. Read and do. Read and do. Read the ticket and do it. Sound familiar, Andrew? <laughs> Read and do. And that is, that's the Christian life. Read and do. We get the wisdom by the reading, and we practice the temperance by the doing. We deny ourselves and do it God's way. You need to watch a person typing who has learned to type this way, the hunt and peck method of typing. You know, for the average person, other than exception, they can only get to a certain speed. Let's say it's 20 words a minute, corrected, doing this thing, which is not real typing. But they can get to 20 words a minute. Along comes wisdom. Wisdom says, never touch that keyboard that way again. This is where you hold your hands. This is home row. These keys are where your eight fingers ought to be. This is called the home row. And you reach from this position for each key on a keyboard. But if I do that, look at how slow I am. And from 20 words a minute, they drop to two because you're, they're not familiar with that method. That's temperance. Do you know what the temperance is when you know you can do 20 this way to go and learn another method that people have already proven is the superior method and start at two and go to four and go to 10 and go to 15 and from 15 you go to 30 and all of a sudden you get excited and from 30 you go to 45 and from 45 you go to 75 and now typing's a blast because you can fly from that home row position. But do you know what it takes to do that? When a person has something already ingrained in their mind, they want to keep doing this and they never get anywhere. It takes the wisdom of someone coming along and saying, there is a better way to do it. Thank you, Lord, for telling us the better way to do it. Now, do we have the temperance to say, I am willing to trust you, Lord. Are you all with me on the illustration of typing? Right. I am willing to trust you, Lord, to tear down the way I've been doing it and to cast myself upon your word and to do it your way, right. even though it's very different from the way I've been doing it. Lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, Amen. and he shall direct thy paths with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Do you all follow what I'm saying? This is how we do it. It's all in the Bible. The rod and reproof work. There isn't another way to train a child. I wrote a proverb on the 29th of last month, just a few days ago from Proverbs 29 and 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. If you let a child go, if you let them go where they want to, listen to what they want to, watch what they want to, have their own thoughts, their own friends, and so forth, their own activities, that child is going to bring its mother to shame because the rod and reproof are necessary to take these little people that are given to us with default mechanisms to foolishness and they have to be redirected to wisdom and righteousness. If you let a child think, do, go, sing, listen, watch, and have friends of their own choosing, they're going down and look who's going to suffer with them. Do you remember how I started that proverb off? Spare the rod and spoil the child. That's an American proverb, and it's true. 
but spare the rod and shame the parents. That's just as true from Proverbs 29, 15. I don't want that for anyone in here. Where are the two passages, before I go on, where are the two passages in the Bible that say that a father should be thinking about four generations? Joel 1.3 is one of them. It's Psalm 78 in the first eight verses. In both places, fathers are given this glorious picture of four generations. Now, ministers are given that in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things that thou hast heard of me, there's Paul speaking to Timothy, that's two generations. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's the four generations, but every father, every mother, every family in here has that same blessed privilege to spread the knowledge of God through the earth by four generations. May the Lord bless us to do that. We want to train our children, not raise them. And the Bible tells us to train them. And it tells us who should be the primary trainer. It should be the father. The first point I wanted to make this morning was the rules for how to do this, the wisdom. And what we trust is the word of God. We esteem it and we hate every contrary opinion or idea. The second thing, because I'm sure that you're established already in trusting the Bible for everything that we do. We want to be Bible believers. We're, when everybody asks you, what are you? What is your religion? We're Bible Christians. Don't give them any other man-made title because they don't understand it. If you say Baptist today, that means nothing to them. Say we're Bible, we're Bible Christians. And if they give you a minute, then explain to them what that means. We are Christians as the Bible tells us how to be Christians. We don't believe the Bible because we're Christians. We're Christians because we believe the Bible. Amen. Because without the Bible, we wouldn't know anything about Christ. Right. And so that's the order of our religion. We're Bible Christians. We base it there. The second rule, or the second important thing that we want to learn this morning, is the example that we have in the home is of crucial importance. The example, not the words, not where you take them to Sunday school. The example that you have in the home. Can, it can't be overstated. Where does hypocrisy come from? Where does, it, where does a child get the idea that religion is this compartmentalized part of a life that only occurs on Sunday, that I go to church, I sing songs, I bring my Bible, but the rest of the week, I live any way I want. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from parents who live that way. The children can detect that. They can smell whether you are excited about going to church in the morning or not. They can tell whether you love Jesus Christ or if you're going through the motions. They know if you get more excited about making money and your business than the Lord. They know that. Rule number two, it, my second point this morning is to be a good example because big hypocrites beget little hypocrites. If they do not know that in this home, mom and dad love the Lord, they are willing to sacrifice for the Lord. Nothing else matters in comparison to them but to please Jesus Christ. That will train your children. I have that example. I know that. The Bible says, as is the mother, so is the daughter. Ezekiel 16 and verse 44. Godly, holy, submissive, gracious women beget 
Godly, holy, gracious, submissive women. Carnal, odious, hypocritical women. Beget carnal, odious, hypocritical women. Unless God intervenes by his grace and he has never promised or is he under obligation to do so. It is our example in the home to plan a family and to have a great family, we have got to have a great example in the home. How many Bible stories you read to your children when they were young is not nearly as important as how you live the Bible. Right. Now you believe that when it comes to evangelism with other people, believe it with your children. A woman can show her children how that a, a faith-based life is the most important thing to them by living a faith-based life. Do you know what a faith-based life is? Whenever there's a problem, you go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to help you get out of it. And all the children can grow up knowing whenever Dad's in trouble, whenever Dad's scared, whenever Dad's worried, he always goes to the Lord in prayer. That's faith-based living. There isn't a movie on television that lives that way. That's why I hate television because it is never promoting faith-based living. Faith-based living is whenever anything good happens to mom and dad, they always give thanks to God. Right. They are always excited about praising the Lord and worshiping Him for His goodness and His mercy toward them. That's faith-based living. Right. And if you have a home based on that, reading the Bible storybook fades into insignificance compared to living that way because they will remember that longer because that is going to create a culture in the home of faith-based living. Mm -hmm. I, I did not say, and don't write me any letters, not to read a Bible story book to your children. I didn't say that. What I said was, if you're going to put the emphasis into doing that, I've got something better for you. And it's the example. We start with a pastor. Remember that a pastor is supposed to be a good father and a good husband, or he should never make it into the pulpit. Well, what's, why, why is that connection there? How is he supposed to be a pastor? Is he just supposed to run around with 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, and bludgeon his people? Or is he, is he supposed to be an example of good works, a pattern of good works, and putting the things that he teaches into practice so that the people can watch it and see? And every father is supposed to be the same way. The way that I take care of the congregation should be the way you take care of your family. You want to live it. Right. Oh, children can smell hypocrisy. If you try to tell your children that we, you should be doing this because that's what the Bible says, but they get to come in here on Sunday and those little tiny ears and eyes are watching the pastor up there and he tells fathers that they ought to be doing something, because it's in the Bible, and you don't do what the pastor told you to do that's in the Bible, but you tell them to do what they're supposed to do in the Bible, you are using the Bible as a hammer on your children when you will not let that Bible teach you. You are a hypocrite, and your children know that, and you are cruising for a bruising. You are, you are a loser, and you're gonna suffer great pain. Amen. There cannot be hypocrisy in our homes. I know about hypocrisy. And not because I ever saw it. Can you think of some more ways that I can emphasize this point? 
your example is more important than what you tell them. The money and the time that you invest in Christian schooling, homeschooling, materials, or private schooling, all that money and all that time amounts to very little if you're not living the example of godliness and righteousness at home. It is amazing to me the amount of effort and money and time that parents will put into their children and yet not practice the whole Bible in front of their children. That's what needs to be done. Little girls will grow up to be submissive, gracious, doting, adoring women of husbands if they see all their life a gracious, submissive, adoring, and doting mother in the home. Do you know what they think? That's the only way to be a wife. There's several things happening. The only example they see is that happy woman happily loving her husband. And they watch the happy look on the happy husband's face as the happy woman happily loves him. And they see all that from one year of age on. I don't care. They see it and feel it in the womb. They feel in the womb, daddy loves mommy and mommy loves daddy. When daddy comes around, mommy relaxes and gets all excited because daddy's there because I can hear this great big booming voice coming home and I can sense him and mommy just gets all excited and the bubbles around me flow faster when daddy comes around. Now for all those of you who don't think I have a sentimental bone in my body, <laughs> I have a couple. You can read about this stuff that a child in the womb can recognize its environment and react accordingly. But from that early, they know daddy loves mommy and mommy loves daddy and mommy enjoys being around daddy and I can feel the love hormones coursing through me whenever daddy comes around. Now that's in the womb. Then they come out and they lay there and they see, as one of my children once said to me, why is daddy eating your mouth? <laughs> children see... Sorry, son. Oh, that gave it away, didn't it? The children see that. An example. How will you tell them to, what are you going to do, rely on me? Once every three years, the pastor's going to preach, well, once a year on marriage. Once a year on marriage, I'm hoping that my children will sit there and pay attention because I know the pastor's going to unload all 66 barrels on everyone about marriage, and I hope they're listening. Forget that. that is, that's very inefficient. I am simply for reminders from the Word of God of what you parents that are already converted should be doing in your home. You know, husbands ought to be chasing wives around once in a while. Husbands can pinch wives in front of children. There isn't a thing detrimental about that. Not a thing detrimental. It will, prov it will build and that's just one example. Please don't write me about that either. A million things that can be done. Smiles, adoring looks, notes, flowers, pats, compliments, fun together. Mom and dad have fun no matter where they go. They always have fun together. They love to be with each other. They'd rather be with each other than with us because they have such a good time with each other. Amen. Not because they want to get away from us. We know they love us. But mom and dad still love each other. And all that has an effect. That little child comes up 
knowing what it means to be a good husband and a good wife. But now everyone in here, the, word, the mirror of the word of God is being held up before your eyes. Do your children get to see the perfect husband and the perfect wife? An odious woman, please follow me. An odious woman does not necessarily read pornography. An odious woman doesn't necessarily dip snuff. An odious woman doesn't necessarily get drunk and beat up the neighbors. So any woman in here who's saying you don't do those things and you're pretty good, I'm holding up the mirror of God's word. How nagging are you? How preoccupied with stupid details are you? And I love every one of you. How critical are you? How thankful are you? How negative are you? How talkative are you? All the things that I teach and preach on a regular basis, how many of those things do you have? That's an odious woman. An odious woman is not a porno reader dipping snuff, getting drunk, and beating up the neighbors. An odious woman is an overbearing, nagging, critical, negative, unthankful woman. Now there's the mirror. A husband, insensitive, harsh, cruel, more interested in his business than his wife and his children. Hold up the mirror and look at it. It's the example that we give our children. How critical and negative are the fathers in here? Do you come home and complain about everything? Do you complain about anything? Do you give thanks all the time? Are you cheerful for all the good things in your life? It's living our religion before our children that they will appreciate such a happy people. Do you know the Bible says that? In Psalm 144 it says, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Right. How, do, how would the children ever know that unless we give them that happy, carefree, continual feast, cheerful life of someone who knows their God and that he's going to take care of the details and that we can just love each other. Yelling, criticizing, complaining, depressed, fretting. Those things are not of God. They are condemned in the Bible. They are outlawed in Christian homes. If you allow them in your home, and every woman and every husband has got to ask himself, how much do I allow these things in the home? You are going to take your family down to pain and trouble. An odious woman, an odious husband, no matter what they say or where they take their children to church, are going to cost their family their success. And you're going to cost yourself happiness. Because your children, if they're under my ministry, are going to be taught how a Christian ought to live. And they're going to know that it's happiness and cheerfulness. And when they can get away from you, they're not going to want to come back because you are too overbearing, too critical, too negative, too depressed, too angry. Why would they want to? Why in the world would they want to be around you? You say, well, aren't you going to help me by preaching that they have to honor their parents? Yes. It will disgust me, but I will teach them that they should honor their parents. But when they're there, just remember that their hearts are not there.
They're only doing it to get you off their back and the Lord off their back and me off their back. Now I'm talking about happy families. Do you want to have a happy family? Then be a happy person. Right. Cut the nagging, criticizing, and negative talking, complaining, and anger that makes, that makes children want to get away from you. It's very simple. Don't resent me right now. I love everyone in here. And I'm telling you, from a father and a grandfather and from a pastor who does get around and know what's going on in his congregation, if you want to have a peaceful family where your children want to be around you, then you had better be giving an example of what the Bible describes of being a happy wife and a happy mother if you're a mother and a cheerful and joyful father and husband if you're a man. If the love of Christ in your home is only so-so, without God's grace, that's all you're going to have is children. Your children will reflect your love of Jesus Christ. There's only one proper authority structure for a home. That's a dominant father and a submissive mother. A dominant husband and a supportive wife. The order had better be visible in the marriage. A loving and adoring wife. A wife who loves her husband more than the children, and the difference is so obvious, they all know that without ever wondering or having to take a measurement. Amen. They know their mother loves their husband and dotes on him and does all the little things for him more than she does for them. That is a godly woman because she remembers for what purpose she was created. And the little children will grow up appreciating that. The little girls will know that they want to dote on the man they love and they'll wonder, why doesn't mommy dote on daddy? The little boys will grow up saying, I want so-and-so to be my wife. I don't want a wife like my mother because she doesn't dote on my father. And they will build up bitterness because there isn't enough doting on the father. Amen. Don't anyone in here get crushed or hate me for what I'm saying right now. This is the word of God coming to you from your pastor because he wants everyone in here to be happy. Right. Third, after pleasing my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and defending the word of God as truth because we live it in our homes. It better be visible in the home. A loving and adoring wife reverencing her husband. If you're a nagger, if you're pushing your husband, if you're overbearing, if you lead most conversations, if you're pushing things most of the time, you are unsettling God's whole order for things and your family is going to crumble and fall apart. Your children will not want to be in that environment because they know better than that. They know better than that if I never preached a word. Because every man has inside him the desire for an adoring and a reverencing wife. Right. When I do preach it, they really have a goal for that. And if the wives aren't giving it, the house is going to fall apart. If the men of this church, which I emphasize greatly, do not rightly love their wives, love their children, lead their wives, lead their children, it's going to be the same thing. If they're critical, if they're negative, if they're depressed, if they're angry, those children, as soon as they are old enough, will get away from that oppressive environment at home to get out on their own. If, by the grace of God and the help of your pastor, we're able to keep them shackled in this church, they will only appear in your presence because they have to. And I am not saying any of it. kills me to say this. It kills me to know that some families in this church are setting themselves up for that eventuality.
If you are an overbearing, detail-conscious, pressing mother, you are ruining your family. While you say, to, this is your stronghold, but I'm helping them. This is your lofty thought, but I'm helping them. This is your vain imagination. But if I didn't do it, the world would fall apart. The Pentagon would close, the sky would fall, and the planets would lose their orbits. No, they wouldn't. You could die this afternoon, and not one of your children will miss a beat. I am sorry to tell you that. That is painful news, but they'll be able they'll manage just fine because they have a whole congregation around them, and there's a God in heaven that will take care of them. All right. mm -hmm. Every man who's ever left an important position in another company knows that when he leaves, he wants the whole company to say, I don't know how we're going to make it without you. But you know what happens? As soon as you leave, somebody else fills that role, and the company does just fine. Yep. The reason I say that is not to make death or losing a mother a non-event. I've got to get through to women, and I've got to get through to men that you had better be living the proper role before them. There's only one proper role in order for a, for a Christian home, and that's a father leading in the fear of the Lord and loving his wife, and that wife adoring and reverencing her husband. If this rule is slighted, <clears throat> you are heading for pain in your home. A dominant mother and a supportive father, which is what is true in most Christian families today, a dominant mother and a supportive father, true in most homes, is not Christian and it's not wise and there's going to be consequences. The father is the primary teacher of the children. And I emphasize that in this church. And if any woman right now is thinking, but my husband isn't a strong enough leader to be the leader of my home, there is a reason why he isn't. And it's not because of any inadequacy on his part. It's because you are too overbearing. And from the very first time that he met you, you have crushed his spirit by pressing too hard at all times. He would be more dominant if you would back off and let him be a man. I love you. Amen. Every man can do it. Or our God's a failure in creating men. He is not. Every father can do it. Every husband can do it if the women will back off and support their husbands and love them and shut up during devotions. Do you know what that means? It means shut up during devotions. Amen. If your husband is teaching your children the Bible, the last thing in the entire universe, the last thing in the entire universe, it would be better to bring the Hindu neighbor in and ask him his opinion in a verse than for you to give your opinion on a verse. He does not need you that way. God did not give you that role. Every time you open the flapper, every time you open the flapper and let anything out, I don't care about your intentions. Listen, all of our intentions are good. Yep. Will you, I hope you'll give me credit for mine right now because yep. I know what you're thinking. All of our intentions are good, but they're wrong. They're misguided. It's an imagination that is wrong. Let the man take the lead. I love this question. Well, what about when my husband explains a verse the wrong way? You know what my answer is? Bless the Lord that you have a husband that is explaining the Bible to your children. Bless the Lord that you have a husband that is explaining the Bible to your children. Yeah. There shouldn't be one care in your soul 
that he, mis he mistaught a verse to your children. I will take care of that in time. That will become exposed in time by the minister that God gave to take care of your husband. You do not have that role. If you open your mouth and ever, one time, one time, one time, one time in a 40-year marriage, one time, you will neuter your husband. One time. I love every woman, and I love every man, and I see the pain that's coming in some home. One time. Keep your mouth shut. Sit there and smile adoringly at this man who wants to lead your children. I don't care how much he fumbles, stumbles, and fails. I don't care if he misinterprets a verse. If he's reading the Bible and praying with your family, you are a blessed woman. You make sure you bless God for that. I'll take care of the error. Don't say anything. I have stories to tell right now that would hurt. I hope the lesson has got through just the way I've said it. The father is the primary teacher. Do you know it's the father that says in Psalm 34, come here, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Psalm 34, 11. Psalm 78, it's fathers. Our fathers taught us, and we want to teach our children and the generation to come the wonderful works of God. It's fathers. When we change, here, here's, here's the whole sermon. Everything that I've said so far, God's word says fathers are to do the training. If we say, I don't care what your reasoning is, my husband isn't good enough, I can do a better job, he's too quiet, he's not doing it, and we start to shift God's order for the home, well, then we're out to sea, and we are leading to our own understanding, and our ship is going to go down. Because what in the world do you know about anything? If we took all of our wisdom in here together today and squared it, we don't know anything right. about nothing. Amen. God has given us wisdom in this book. We do not even alter it a little bit. We don't turn to the left hand or the right hand. We don't add to or take away from it. We do it God's way. A prosperous family has to have a strong father like Abraham and Joshua. Abraham, God said of Abraham, I know him that he will command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. What a wonderful statement. There was Abraham. Could Abraham be influenced from time to time by his wife? Yes. Was he a perfect man? No. But what did God see when he looked down? He saw a man that was going to command that whole household to keep the way of the Lord. Not suggest it, but command it. This is what we're going to do in this house. Do you know why a man ever backs off from doing that? Because he's got this pushy woman at his side. All she should be doing is looking at him like Pat Nixon used to look at her husband when she was the first lady of this country. Just stand, I don't care what she did at home. Just stand there and look at him and adore him. Pat Nixon did that. Pat Nixon was one wonderful first lady in this country. I don't care if she smoked. I don't care what she did at home. But when she was in public, she knew how to adore her husband. Just stand there and let him take over. And thank him when you go to bed that night. Every woman should tell her husband, thank you for having devotions with the children. I am married to a mighty man of valor because there's hardly any men left in the whole world that are doing that. I can't imagine how hard it must be for you to work hard all day and to come home and to take more time with the children, to read the Bible to them. You're a wonderful man, 
and I'm thankful for being married to you. He'll be a stud if you would ever treat him that way. Joshua said, it's for me and my house. If the wife will agree with me, we're going to serve the Lord. No. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. That's what he said. He didn't ask his wife, and he didn't ask the children. He didn't need the wife, and he didn't need the children. God gave the father so much authority that if a woman even made a vow to God, and the, and the husband heard it and said, that's, that's ridiculous. I need her home right now. Do you know what? Numbers chapter 30, there's a whole chapter written for it that a husband could just overrule her vow to the Lord. That's the authority structure that God's given. I don't have time to preach a million details about it. Look at a thousand scriptures. I've done that before. Right now, I want to get your attention with the mirror of God's word. Can we all go home and make sure that we're living? Every woman is living the example of a Christ-loving, truth-practicing, husband-adoring, gentle and tender mother. That means positive, cheerful, and supportive to their children. And every father is a godly leader wanting to serve Christ with his whole family, live the Bible, defend the truth, love their mother, teach the children, and be a godly man and to have a godly family. The mirror is up. Are we going to do that? Family planning is planning a family that pleases the Lord, defends the truth, and gives us happy days in the future by putting into practice all that the Bible has to say. We can do it. You can do it. I want it for my family, and I want it for your family. May the Lord bless us to that end. Amen. May Jesus Christ be praised, and may the grace of the Holy Spirit give us the strength and the conviction to do what we ought to do. Amen.